0: Hello and welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm Nicholas Walton and in this program we're going to hear from Mark Corner about his book The European Union and Introduction. What kind of animal is it? On the book's cover is his clue to what kind of animal he might think the EU is. A quagga, a sort of cross between a horse and a zebra. In other words, not quite one thing and not quite another. So to explain that and perhaps tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to write the book all the way from Brussels, here's Mark. Hello Mark. Hello, so um, can you just introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about who you are and and how you came to write it?
1: Yeah, um, um my name's Mark Corner. I'm from the u k and um, I'm, I'm married to a, a Czech woman, and here we are living in Belgium, so we have experienced quite a few countries and languages between us and um I wanted to write an introduction to the to the EU, partly because that's something that I teach about at the university I work in, but also because I'm um, what they call a conférencier, an external speaker for the European Commission, and that essentially means groups of visitors who come to the Commission and who have an explanation of what the commission is about in 90 minutes with questions and discussion. And they may be Indian diplomats, or they may be sixth formers from South End sporting UKIP badges, or they may be all sorts of different groups. And the, the reason I read the book, and goodness knows there are quite a lot, of introductions to the EU. And I know a lot of people seeing the fact that another introduction to the EU will go, oh no, not another introduction to the EU. But the reason I think is that I feel that something has to be written that without being simplistic is clear and is straightforward and is practical and doesn't spend all its time talking about how many commissioners there are and how many commissioners there have been and how many commissioners there might be in the future, but actually tries to talk in practical terms of what the EU does, whether it does it well or badly, just some of the things it does. And therefore I set out to write a book that was different, as you rightly said, a quagger on the front, because I was so tired of all those yellow stars on a blue background. It seems you couldn't actually write a book about the EU without the cover having to have yellow stars on a blue background. And a quagga, because that's... Um, actually, that's an animal. Funnily enough, it's a it's a word that I discovered when I was a child playing Scrabble. Um, and um, it's an animal that is extinct, but lived in the 19th century in South Africa. It's probably hunted to death by all my ancestors. And it's half zebra, half horse. And when you look at it, you think, what an odd creature It should make its mind up. It should go <laughs> with the stripes, or it should go with the haunch and tail and be a horse. It should. It, and um, I think that's often how debates about the EU go, that they think it's something that needs to change from what it is to something more comprehensible or natural or more like other things. And what I've tried to do in the book is both to show how the EU is different and also perhaps to some extent to try to show how its being different doesn't necessarily mean it doesn't do some useful things or that it can't work um, and function in the way the Quagga used to function before they all, admittedly, died out 100 years ago. <laughs> uh, and
0: and of course, the subtext to all of this is people wondering whether it should be a state in itself or a collection of independent states, and how much statehood it should take away from from things. Um, and this question of, this question is is what underlines it. When everyone looks at the EU, that's what they're thinking of. Is that is that your argument?
1: Yes, I think that's right. I think. The EU can easily become a kind of candle burning at two ends. Uh, At one end, you've got the. Well, okay, say it's the kind of. um, If you like the kind of Eurosceptic approach, where 28 nations sharing sovereignty, even partially, is like 28 people stuck in a lift. And, you know, the, the air is getting rather stifling and someone's fainted and someone says, I wish I was dead and someone else says, I wish you were dead. And then suddenly there's a sound of a pneumatic drill and the the door flies open and there's a sort of smiling Mr. Farage to let everyone out. And they go back to having the sort of natural space from their neighbours that everybody wants. And that approach is at one end and perhaps that's in a way the one that people are familiar with, or more familiar with, that it, that it should, um, that it compromises national sovereignty. But at the other end, why I call it candle burning both ends, is that there's also a group, which in my view is, is also a mistake, and which sees in in the European Union the kind of birth pangs of a new super state, that, that this is like the way... Italy was built in the 19th century by putting together, you know, Sicily and Piedmont, or how um, Germany was put together in the later 19th century. The, the, the seven treaties are like the seven birth pangs before a new, a new state is born. And in my view, that is also mistaken. But these, these two views, in some ways, they're rather alike. Because for both of them, uh, a state in separation from all other states is the only thing that they they see making sense. The, the idea that there should be any sort of close relationship involved in a partial sharing of sovereignty is is unacceptable to both sides. So the Eurosceptics want 28 states that are all separate from one another, and at the other end, people who you might call Federalists, although that's a very dodgy word and can mean several things, but they think that you're building one state which will then march around the world and be probably rather aggressive with other super states like Russia or China or the United States. But that, again, is simply the same old system. You're just building one other big state separated from all the other states. And what I try to say about the EU is that, that what you've got is something in the middle, that states keep their identity. They don't turn into regions of a big super state, when they're in the relationship, they are in the EU, but they're sufficiently bound together that the sort of conflicts and and warfare, indeed, that have happened in much of Europe's history, become less likely. You can never make it impossible, and Europe has had wars since the Second World War, but still, you can make it much less likely. And that's basically the argument. Um, But like anyone who says there's a problem at this end and there's a problem at that end, you've always got to make sure that you make the sort of middle view sound reasonably lively and interesting.
0: Yes, I I completely and utterly agree with that. But at the same time, there is a a problem with that argument in that uh, people do like to see the direction of travel. And that's especially been highlighted, for instance, with with the Big Bang expansion back in 2004, uh, where, where it, it took in uh, 10 countries and then subsequently two and then another one, Croatia, just very recently. And that changed the whole nature of what, what it was, what it could be and where things were going. And then, of course, the, the, even more recently than that, we've had the European uh, financial crisis and its impact upon one of the great European projects, the euro, which which I think among elites, politicians, voting publics, Everyone uh has has begged the question, what exactly is it for and where is it going? And it's always uh I mean I I understand your argument and, and I agree with a lot of it, but I can also understand the counter argument where people actually sort of demand a little bit more than just say, well it's 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 a way of doing things that does this and this and this and has this kind of output. Uh and, and look to something a little bit more defined.
1: Yeah, I, I think I think um, that there has to be a lot of of uh, practical talk about about what it actually about what it actually does um and i i mean it the, really there 's a couple of points in in what you say the the two thousand and four big bang you 're right it was a big bang it was a it was a it was a one off of course normally expansion has been in ones and twos and threes right back from when the UK joined as one of three, and then Greece was a one, and Spain and Portugal was a two, and then mm-hmm. Austria, Sweden, and Finland as a three. And then there was this big bang of many of the countries that had been under communism after the end of the, or the, the, the Iron Curtain was removed. And that will never happen again. I mean, since then, there's been a, a two, as you write, say, 2007, one in 2013, and... Uh, the president-designate Juncker said there'll be no further expansion in the next five years. And further enlargement will be in ones and twos. So I think that Big Bang, which did rather shake the system, was a one-off. But the, f- the, f- the, f- the f- further point, so I probably should say that one important thing is that one should always remember that it's, um, it's a voluntary arrangement.
2: Mm-hmm. It
1: not like building up the United States where you end up with a position, there's no right of secession, and the most, the most costly war in terms of human life that the United States has fought is against itself to prevent 13 states seceding. This is a, this is a, a, a situation where it can grow or it can shrink, or it can be like a revolving door with one coming and one going. And of course, we know there may be a, a referendum in mean, um, the UK in 2017. But of course, there was a referendum back in 1975 about whether we should stay in the the EEC. We were the one country that didn't actually have a referendum about joining.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it understood within the EU that you can leave and it can get smaller, but it can also get larger. But I agree that Big Bang was a a big shake-up. Sorry, the second point, which is very, very important, about the Euro crisis, and that does rightly lead people to say, you know, almost, which reminds me of that Monty Python sketch, what have the Romans ever done for us, but that you know, we're in this very difficult financial situation, so we want to know in practical terms what being in the European Union can actually do to help. And that's a perfectly fair point, and I mean I think that that over 60 years, people have recognised that building up the singular internal market has been, in very very many practical ways, of enormous benefit to everybody in the EU, and certainly of benefit to consumers, but also of benefit to con- producers. That you can actually do business in 28 different states almost as easily as within 28 regions of one state. But, of course, when you've got a world financial crisis, however beneficial that might have been, it seems as if talking about the economic benefits is you know, rather ridiculous at a time when you've got huge problems of unemployment and huge problems of threatened deflation and a continuing euro crisis I mean depending which economist you listen to but it, this is this is either the beginning of recovery or the eye of the storm so i I agree in that sort of situation you can't just say we're much better off than they would we would have been although I think that's true you've got to be focused upon practical advantages mm-hmm. and that's what I try to do and in, in the book I try to say look this is the system has made it much easier for goods to circulate for services to circulate you wouldn 't have the age of Ryanair of low cost carriers you wouldn 't have these um, you wouldn 't have roaming charges coming down you wouldn 't have these practical benefits without without being inside this market
2: mm-hmm.
1: and if you 're environmentally conscious you you have enormous soft power with this market of 500 million people in terms of being able to make requirements of those who want to sell inside this market actually that gives the eu an enormous um a possibility to exercise a great deal of power worldwide and i try and give practical examples of that as well i mean you're right it, it It's um, When you've got huge levels of unemployment in certain EU states, I mean, 50% youth unemployment in Greece and Spain and so on, it's such a horrendous situation that it's completely unsurprising that people say, the EU must be terrible. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think that a fair assessment would be that this is something that has caused trouble in all parts of the world, certainly
2: in
0: the EU, but not only that. Mm. But uh, obviously, coming off the the EU crisis, we have, uh, I suppose, two different trains of thought. I mean, multiple trains of thought. But we have, for instance, the uh, those who see that the EU, that the euro, uh, certainly in its present form, is is a is a something that they desperately want to stay out of. And that includes uh, those up in Scandinavia who feel that they would like to keep opting out of it as, as long as possible, as well as, obviously, many people in Britain. But you also have uh, people within the, the Eurozone who believe that the the only way forward is to actually make it a much more coherent thing, move towards either being the quagga or the zebra. Um, and that's why I picked out the Euro as such a moment. Do you think that that is changing the, the conception of uh, of, of what pe- what kind of animal people think the eu not not just is but what it needs to become in the future
1: i i don 't think so I always like to give the example of france i mean France is inside the eurozone France is a very proud and independent country that would never give up its the areas where it insists upon having the sort of sovereign powers that could never exist if it was simply the region of a super state. Um, I'm absolutely convinced that the French will always keep an independent foreign policy, will always keep control of their nuclear weapons, and um, a place in the Security Council. And I don't think they're going to have any problems combining this with um, participating in the Eurozone. Mm -hmm. I don't think they're going to... have any problems combining this with insisting upon a particular French approach to recovery in the Eurozone with these um, conversations that are going on at the moment with the Commission? I think they've, I think what the French have seen is that participating in a, in a, in a, in the EU's system, that this so-called community method can actually be something that benefits and even strengthens the nation-state. I don't think they have a problem. I don't think it's as if, as soon as you get into the Eurozone, you, you're inevitably some kind of creeping Federalist. Um, I mean, the, the Eurozone is steadily expanding, and the 19th member Lithuania will come in next year. It's grown from 11 to 19. It wouldn't surprise me if eventually the Eurozone did include everybody, but it's essentially an economic arrangement. I mean, there is a certain obvious logic about a single market having a single currency. But I think you can have a single currency without thinking you're going to belong to a single state. I I just don't think you cross that divide simply by having a single currency.
0: Okay. Um, the uh, this takes us back to uh, another question I was going to ask, but I, I wondered whether we should stick with the euro for a second. Um, I mean, that the, the the counterpoint to what you're saying is it would be that to actually make the euro get past crises such as the one that that came about thanks to the uh, you know the global financial crisis, the credit crunch, etc., was that it did need to have much more of a of a uh, of a solid. Grounding that went beyond simple economics. It went into the fiscal behaviour of, of states. It went into how people actually use their funds. Uh, it went into uh, transfers between nations, etc. Um, does that not alter things?
1: Well, I think it alters things, but I don't think it alters things quite as much as, as, as people think. I mean, it is obviously true that in order to have a functioning single market, um, you do need to go beyond the economic realm. That's always been true. Mm -hmm. Because, for instance, if you've got a single market, you must expect to have people moving to live in other parts of the EU and work in other parts of the EU. And, in fact, that, that needs to increase. Um, the OECD reported a few years ago that only 3% of people in the EU work in a country that is not the one they were born in. And that's a very small percentage. And, I mean, to make that easier, you obviously need to go beyond the economic. I mean, I'm, I'm from the UK. I'm married to a Czech. We live in Belgium. So we need all sorts of arrangements for health, for education, for pensions. Mm -hmm. And what happens if we have a divorce? I mean, we're not planning one, but is it (laughs) Belgian law? Is it Czech law? Is it English law? I mean, obviously, to get this free movement of people, which I know is a controversial matter in the UK, but to get people moving around, to get people working in other member states, to get the sort of arrangement whereby if Lego in Denmark wants lots of workers in plastics from Portugal... It employs them four days a week, and the other fifth day they learn Danish, because language barriers are obviously going to be there, but they can be overcome. To get all that arranged, yes, you have to move beyond the economic. But I don't think that means you have to be building a single state. And I think the same, I mean, you're right. There are areas which are being looked at in the economic area, where at the moment you don't have a binding EU position. That, that's in all sorts of areas. VAT, you can have a minimum of 15%, but you can go above it as much as you like. The same rule for excise duties. Corporation tax, you can decide for yourself. There was a bit of an argument about that, because Ireland is very low, and, mm-hmm. and France was arguing that there should be some sort of binding EU law on that, but in the end it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, there will be these debates in particular areas, but I don't think it affects the overall position.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Back to uh, where, where, when uh, you ha- obviously have a, a good amount of history setting out the background in your, in your book for, for the EU uh, before it started, the, day, the early days, and then all the way through to um, you know, current development. Um, the, the, the real crucible of when the EU was formed was in the immediate post-Second World War years when the initial group of countries came together, uh, what kind of, uh, do you think that there was a fairly unified idea about what, uh, what kicked off then with the st- coal and steel community was going to be? What kind of animal did they think it was going to be? Did they all have different ideas, or was there a, a kind of unified vision?
1: You know, I think to some extent they did um, all have slightly different ideas, and I think they, in particular, the, the power of the European Court of Justice was something that they didn't entirely anticipate when they set it up. Mm. But what strikes me very much about the way it all began was that it began in a way, as, and uh, I mean, there are a number of, um, recent historians that, that, that I think are right in arguing this. It began to, to rescue the nation state. I, mean, I think this think Germany, for instance, was unsure about whether it would be able to continue in existence after the Second World War. You had all the revelations coming out after 1945 about the Holocaust. You had Allied occupation. You had the division into East and West. During the war, there had been talk of dismembering Germany. Remember, Al Rowe, the Frenchman, said, I love Germany so much, I want several of them. <laughs> And, and, and in that context, it was unsure what its own future was. And therefore, for Conrad Adenauer, who said this is our breakthrough when the idea came through, partial sovereignty was better than none at all. He knew this was a way of being able to ensure that Germany continued in existence. For France, I think it's more complicated, but for France, it knew that its own recovery and its own entry, which, I mean, for, since the end of the Napoleonic Wars, France had been falling behind. And the sort of industrial recovery that, that um, de Gaulle was so desperate to see happen in France could only come from access to German coal. And I think, therefore, it was a combination of German desire to survive as a nation and French desire to recover as a nation that produced a real political impetus and drew the other four with them, and I, I think it's it's a fair interpretation. This it it was something that the countries that wanted, to some extent, to save themselves, stumbled upon, or grabbed hold of, as a way of doing business together, a way of cooperating, that that actually turned out to work quite well but which they didn't really have in a, in a blueprint already set out in front of them when they began it.
0: In fact, you, it you, you... Sorry, I was going to say that you you so, used that lovely quote about the EU being one of those things that works in practice, but not in theory. And you're saying that that's, that, that idea is traceable to those very early days. I
1: think, I think it is. I mean, sometimes... I, I'm not... It isn't a one... No. Sometimes it doesn't work in practice. But... Um, I think, it's some, I, I, I think the, the point of that quote, really, is that it's not something that... thousands some of people sat down, wrote out the theory, understood that it was going to work perfectly, and then translated into practice. It's something that turned out to work well in practice. And because it turned out to work well in practice, it drew countries like the UK to take the idea seriously and eventually to apply to join. And, unfortunately... The application was delayed ten years by, by De Gaulle. Otherwise, I think it would have been a lot better. Mm.
0: Um. I think there's quite a few people here who believe that. Um, w- one one question following on from all of this, obviously at the heart of it, you had the uh, um, Monet and his way of doing things set the tone for the way that the EU went around. Uh, it, it, its activities uh, did this not set a, a, a kind of theory uh, up so that while everything else looked as though it was just you know, as, you, as we've said a, a kind of pragmatic solution to countries coming together at its core there was a theory but it was only held by an elite based in Brussels
1: well I I, I think that I don't. I think that there may be some truth in the idea that Monet went about his work um, right from right from the beginning. Monet was essentially the supreme networker. I mean, if you read his biography, it's, it's. I mean, he he knew everybody. He he during the Second World War he knew Roosevelt well. He he knew. He knew Churchill. Well, Churchill got him a, a, a British passport so he could go to America. He, he, he was very, very good at networking, not only with politicians, but with officials. And sometimes he preferred working with the officials because they stayed in place. And the politicians, I mean, there were like 19 presidents of France in 10 years after the Second World War. You could have much more influence if you got to influence the, the permanent officials. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's it's true that that was the way he worked, rather than, if you like, setting up some sort of mass movement to push for this. And I think that could lead to potential problems. And what I think has helped to balance it as the EU has developed is the increasing power of the parliament. I mean, the, originally there was only national assemblies, and national and national assembly, and that was essentially. Delegates from the various European parliaments—so so many people from the French parliament, so many from the German parliament. Once you had direct direct elections to a European Parliament, which was not envisaged by Monet, in 1979 that began. You had a steady increase in the power of that Parliament, and I think that it is begun beginning to be taken much more seriously, and to have much more effect as a representative of popular opinion. I mean, you know, I'm sure that does mean there are a lot of Eurosceptic people inside it. Even the Eurosceptics, or even those who think it shouldn't exist,
2: mm-hmm.
1: seem to think it's worthwhile working inside it and trying to change things. And it's steadily increased its power.
2: Mm-hmm. There's
1: nothing where the Commission can propose a new law now where, they, where the Parliament doesn't have the power to say yes or no to it or to amend it. Even something like the, the budget is um, the seven-year budget, when all the heads of state came in last year and argued about what the EU budget should be. The parliament can vote on that now. The president of the commission, that was essentially the nominee of the party that did best in the parliament. But, I, I mean, that won the, 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 the parliamentary election in the sense that it got more votes than the others. And then, when Juncker was actually formally proposed, the parliament had another vote. And unless two of the parties had voted in favour, Juncker would, would w- wouldn't have been president of the commission. And right now, all the, all the other commissioners are being vetted by a parliamentary committee. And, you know, the Slovenian nominee, who was the prime minister of, Slo- of uh, Slovenia and, and, and nominated herself to be a commissioner the Parliament has said, no, that's not acceptable. And I think that has introduced a democratic quality. And a, and in a way, I think that if... I mean, I, I know that uh, interest in the European Parliament fell, and it went up very, very slightly this year, but only very, very slightly. But I think there's a bit of a time lag here. To some extent, it's... It's the sort of tiger that hasn't yet roared. And I think people will begin to see in the European Parliament something that perhaps has, hasn't been there before because it was set up through a lot of very effective networking to solve some problems which politicians felt, but not it's true as a response to a huge popular movement. That's mm. true
0: on the, on the parliament i just wanted to ask now that there are quite a a few parts of the political spectrum represented there um mm-hmm. do, do you think that that ad- actually adds to its legitimacy i mean you have uh, you have a whole array of of what you might term Eurosceptic. you might call some of them hard left or hard right groups and nationalist groups populist groups etc Certainly there's a a Eurosceptic element that has not always been particularly well represented in Parliament but has been, uh, shall we say, bubbling up in the European populace. Do you think that that actually adds to the legitimacy of the Parliament or makes everything a little bit more difficult?
1: I think it does both. I mean, I I, I know there are members of the European Parliament who say, oh my goodness, there's lots of Eurosceptics in the Parliament now, that means there's going to be lots of squabbles. But I'm not very sympathetic with that view, because Mm. I think, you know, that's just an impolite way of talking about (laughs) debates. And I think it should be difficult. I don't think um, people who get elected and have a lot of responsibility should have an easy time. And um, so I think both. I think it will lead to a lot of very difficult votes, but I think it might improve the quality of the discussions and it might lead to less of the kind of set piece presentations and more of the actual sort of ding dong debate that you get in the commons at times. So I think it's I, I think it, it does add to the legitimacy. And not just of course Euroscated parties, there are as you say there are there's a hard left group, there's over fifty green mm-hmm. MEPs. There's quite a substantial green block as well. And that has a representation at the EU level. So all parts of the
0: of the spectrum, and I think that that's right. Mm. And uh, your your book obviously is written by uh, somebody who's within Brussels, and you know you have your involvement with Brussels institutions, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're anything other than independent. But if you were outside Brussels, outside the beltway, as they would say, with Washington DC, do you think that you might have, have uh, might see things differently, or, or do you think that your view would apply? Uh, but um, either way, but that being within Brussels, you have slightly more insight.
1: I, I think I have a bit bit more insight being inside, but but I, I don't think I'd. Um, it, it doesn't. I mean, it, it, I think there are both positive and negative things that you, that you see by actually living here. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, when I walk past the Berlaymont building and I, I see a great big banner. Held o- over the edge. And, you know, some people, EU members who are f- from former Central and Eastern European countries say, you know, these great big banners, we remember them when, li- when we lived <laughs> under, under socialism, you know. And you sort of see the smiling the smiling face of some communist apparatchik and, and sort of peace or something written underneath. And I, I mean, I can see that there's some. Um... But at the same time, when you actually try and get involved in the nitty-gritty of policy, then I think you do see that there are certain very, very practical ways in which it can help to have 28 nations working this way. And that's what I try to do in my book. I talk about an EU naval force. It's not going to save the world, (laughs) but it has helped in the Gulf of Aden, and it's something practical. I talk about the The attempt to control vehicle emissions, which has made for lower carbon dioxide emissions. I talk about organic farming, and I I think that the the specific, there are certain specific ways in which being in Brussels has helped. At the same time, Monet himself always wanted to have an equivalent of Washington, D.C. He wanted a headquarters of the EU that wasn't in any particular member state. And I feel a bit of sympathy with that because you have all these quarrels about whether the parliament should meet in Strasbourg or Brussels and will the French perhaps upset if it's not in Strasbourg and blah, blah. And I think in some ways it would be better to have all the institutions in one place which wasn't a particular, a particular member state. Mm. But still, being in Brussels, where most of the institutions are, I mean, I think, I think it does, it it does, give a certain insight. But you know, there are no no particular. I wouldn't say I had inside knowledge or anything like that. Mm. I just happened to be living and working. There.
0: Um, just a few thoughts about where everything goes now as you say there is certainly no strict blueprint there's no binding theory about how the the you know the the political culture of the european union has to develop over time and what it might eventually be in in the future there's forces pulling it all over the place and then there's just practical considerations that are, are gradually being dealt with and resolved often to the benefit great benefit of many of the citizens uh, but do you think that the european union is a durable idea or is it one that only exists as long as it's getting most things right most of the time and not creating too much of a groundswell of, of either alienation or protest or, or or being associated too much with ills such as the, um, the, the great levels of of um, of uh, youth unemployment in places like Greece and Spain?
1: Well, I think that what might make it durable is that it is it is the best way of dealing with one of the... What I still think is the, is the greatest threat to—I, I, without wanting to sound as if I'm wildly exaggerating—the greatest threat to, to life on Earth, and that is um, nationalism. I mean,
2: the,
1: on the one hand, there's no doubt that people have a very strong attachment to the country they come from, and 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 natural patriotism. It's like attachment to a family and it's very powerful force at the same time we know that spillover from that into kind of nationalist fervor has caused untold destruction Mm -hmm. and um i think that i don't think the solution is to have as i say one single world state i mean people feel very scared by the idea of you know the World government and world leader—I mean, it's something totally inescapable. You know, if you don't like living in Britain, you can go and live in France. But if you don't like living in the world, you know Mars isn't really an option. So I think that that on the one hand, people have very strong attachments to particular states a they, very strong patriotic, patriotic feeling. But on the other hand, it needs some sort of voluntary management or or or. or control, and I think to some extent the EU system does offer that a way of enabling nation-states to remain nation-states, people remain French or British or whatever, but at the same time to be sufficiently bound together that they don't have the reasons for conflict they used to have. If that model works in Europe, then it is a model that indeed could possibly work elsewhere, and Insofar as there is still, there are still huge, huge problems. I would say more than anything else, the threat to world security lay in an excess of nationalism, and I I don't think that the answer. I, I think perhaps the EU system can fit into that. If it if it can, then I think it does have a significant future. Whatever the problems of the Euro
0: crisis. Mm. That's a good way to end it. Um, the uh, final question I was just going to throw at you, just completely out of the blue, is, is far less serious than all of that, and that is, across the across the 28 nations that make up the European Union at the minute, what, what's your favourite place? What's your favourite place? Could be a city, a county, a, a, an area, or, or whatever.
1: No, i would have to be Prague. Prague. To be Prague. I lived there for for 13 years um, and um, got married there and uh, I, I, I would say I think it's a city like no other but it's stupid to say that because I, there are many, many, many great cities I've never been in but um, I think Prague
0: And that was Mark Corner talking about Prague and his new book, The European Union An Introduction, What Kind of Animal Is It? As he says, we're not short of books about the EU, but this one is well worth buying, as it's far, far more than just a plod around the institutions and their functions. That's it for this episode of New Books in European Studies. Don't forget to visit our website at newbooksnetwork.com and subscribe to our podcasts on European studies and far, far more. You can also track us down on Facebook, and I hope to get a bit of time to sort out the Europe page sooner or later. My name's Nicholas Walton. Thanks for listening.